everyone. I just wanted to give you a heads up on two events that are upcoming with Jason. The first is his online 200-hour training. So you can take this training if you're interested in becoming a registered yoga teacher with Yoga Alliance, or if you are simply interested in deepening your practice and insight into yoga. Uh, you can learn more and join the waitlist at jasonyoga.com slash 200. We will let you know when the dates and details become available and we will send you a discount code if you join the waitlist. And then the second event is Jason will be back in London this coming October, October 13th through 18th. And he will be doing a six day morning intensive that you can join from 9am to noon, as well as the module two of his hybrid teacher training. So if you want to get those details, go to jasonyoga.com slash London. Okay, enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti and this is Yogaland. Today is a very special episode. It's two parts. The second part is a replay of a former episode I did with Sally Kempton, all about the ego. I have done three interviews with Sally over the years. I went back and listened to them, and the ego was my favorite, so I wanted to replay that. But I will put links to the other two on the show notes page. And then the first part of the interview is with Caitlin Quisgard. Caitlin and I worked together when she was editor-in-chief at Yoga Journal. She knew Sally very well. She actually tells the story of when she first met Sally when she was 16 years old and in her punk rock phase. And she worked with Sally just like I did, very closely. So Sally passed away on July 10th of this year, and Caitlin and I wanted to get together and both reflect on Sally and our times with her and just share a little bit more of her with the world as a way to honor her. It was really so special to talk to Caitlin. I learned some more things about Sally that I hadn't known, stories that Caitlin shared with me, and it just reinforced for me how powerful and magical one person's life can be and how important it is for us to be present for each other and to show up for each other. That's what Sally did for all of us time and time and time again as she guided us into our hearts and as she guided us deeply in meditation. So enjoy the interview with Caitlin and the follow-up interview with Sally. So you mentioned in your email that you had meditated with her at her home. So when was that? Oh, such a good question. It was, I want to say 2018. Okay. Wow. Uh, or maybe 2019, one of those years. And I can't recall how, what transpired exactly, but she invited me to come for the weekend to her oh. home. And I arrived on, I want to say, a Friday afternoon and stayed through Sunday morning. And it was it was a spectacular experience in many I'm ways. Sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and part of what made it so unique and fantastic was the special combination that is Sally, which was, on the one hand, 
a genuinely welcoming, friendly, like the friendship part of Sally and the very human, let's get dinner and mm-hmm. let's gossip about something totally. or talk about you know, the politics and the news of a, the day. She was such a girl. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. She connected so well. Yeah. And then on the other, this like deep, she, both mornings that I was there, we meditated together. And in the second morning, she, um, I mean, she, she offered me a different kind of practice and we can talk about that in a minute. That was just so ended up being a really transformative experience for me. Yeah. I just had this funny memory of Sally that I wanted to I I actually think it was a memory with you of you and I chuckling about Sally that I kind of wanted to bring up. I can just remember this one time you and I talking and you said something like, you know, whenever I talk to Sally, I'm just struck by the fact that she is in a relationship with herself and it is her favorite relationship. (laughs) And it is, it is, it's like, I don't want to say it's like a romantic relationship because it wasn't romancing herself, but what everybody else was seeking from a partner, Sally was just in this like deep dance of it within herself and her meditation practice. So whenever you would say to Sally, one of us would say like, how are you? The answer was just so layered and rich and internal. And it was always about that deep relationship with herself. Do you remember us talking about that? I don't know if I remember that exactly, but I I totally um like it sounds familiar. Yes. Yeah. And and I would say from my standpoint today, I would say with the big S self. Somewhere since her passing, I either read something or the video, the beautiful video that's on her website that where she tells the story of her life. She talks about living in love. Mm. And that feels so Sally to me, like that she was able to drop into a space of love of herself, of the big S self of love itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and therefore her life was incredibly rich in this way that is, I mean, I guess it's really the representation of consciousness and Consciousness as love in a really textured experience. Totally. She's, I think about her and I just think, and I bet you can relate to this too, because you and I are totally of the same ilk of having grown up in academic families, high pressure families. We both went to one of the seven sisters colleges. So we had this like feminist background, high pressure background. And so for me, I marvel at like, she was so soothing to me and such a, like what you just described about her was just such a beautiful, soothing part of her presence. And yet she was a fierce feminist. And mm-hmm. so I could relate to that too. I didn't feel like I had to become something else to to be spiritual, which was a huge relief to me. I love, so I would say that she was, Fearless is a word I would definitely, um, that I, I think of her it, with the word fearless that you just said. When you think about the choices that she made in her life, like how radical it was to drop out of 
the society that she, I mean, you think we came from a high pressure society, right? Her dad was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. She was on track to be a breakout star. (laughs) She had all this opportunity just right in front of her already. And she and she would use the word drop out because she is a girl of the 60s. <laughs> she dropped out to drop in to something that she found so much more valuable, mm-hmm. but it was a really, really radical choice. And I love that that choice. And I think it was an, so it was a very radical choice to drop out and become a monk in a Hindu tradition and to wear the orange robes to to follow a male master as a feminist, all, you know, so many things that, that, and to give up her individual freedom, because to be a monk in a tradition is to be obedient to the tradition, maybe not to the person, like not to, like in theory, yes, to the guru, but I would say that Sally would say obedient to the tradition Mm -hmm. to make all those choices were incredibly radical and then equally radical to make the choice in her fifties to leave and start a completely new life out in the world. Like, I mean, so powerful, such a powerful example. I've been thinking about the leaving a lot lately because I think while at Yoga Journal, I thought about her entering the ashram a lot, but I only in her passing have I has it dawned on me how courageous and challenging it must have been on many levels to leave. And I never asked her about it, and I don't know what she went through at all in that in that leaving but like everything else she seemed to just take it in stride I think probably she didn't take it in stride I mean I think it was probably a a pretty big challenge Mm -hmm. I think that she she had a lot to navigate because there's the leaving of the organization and what is yours? Just think about it from like an IP perspective. What is yours to teach versus what is the organization's sort of IP, if you will? Right. Um, what are the personal? Yeah. 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 What are the personal dynamics around? Because it is a guru-based organization, and after Muktananda died, that became the the primary spiritual leader of the organization. Right. I would say that you know Sally is a person of such high integrity that whatever it it was that took for her to leave just on those pragmatic issues, like she wasn't going to share that with the mm-hmm. world. So right. I don't know that much about any of that. Then there's the, just the, who are you in a world that you have not lived in for such a long time? How do you make a living? How do you, you know, who are your friends and people. And, you know, the way that she has spoken about it publicly is that it was intuitively the next thing she needed for her own personal growth and development. And that's part of her fearlessness is leaning into what she intuited. She was an incredibly intuitive person, right? right? So what did she intuit as what she needed? And then really... I don't know, like not second guessing herself and being okay with the fact that it was going to be challenging. Right. Right. No, I think you, I think you 
hit on what I was trying to form, which is that sense of intuition and just that she navigated whatever challenges came up because she just knew that that was the next part of her path. It was amazing. And, and I'm just so grateful that she did that because I would have never been exposed to her otherwise. And she completely had such a huge impact on my life. Do you remember when we went to LA to that weekend workshop of hers? And do you remember? I can't remember. We must have flown. We didn't drive, but I think the flight arrived late. So the workshop started on like a Friday afternoon or Friday evening and we got to the studio and everybody was doing the invocation chant, like just as we got there. And we were just so happy. Like we sat down and we just felt so, it was like, oh, we've arrived. It was so nice. I do remember that. It was, it was really great. And I think it was also like um, a sign of our commitment to like this. It wasn't a yoga journal project that we were doing something. We were both just so into Sally that we're like, let's go to this. She's coming. She's teaching. Let's go. And then I also, yeah. And that weekend, I was just such a lovely part of her is that she bridged the world of being a teacher And being a real, genuine teacher who could hold space and would hold space and was a serious guide and then could also then be your friend. And so I remember during that weekend, uh, you and I, and there were a few other people too. I can't remember who it was. We go to a tea house. We went to a tea house on Melrose. (laughs) We just like hung out with her and it was just like a girlfriend's you know she was just so she was so funny I mean that's one of the things that I appreciated about her so much she was she had such a good sense of humor and saw the humor in things and was just so easy to hang out with you know she said at one point in again in something that I've refreshed my memory on since her passing she said that when everything is stripped away because in her many years of ashram living, there is nothing but the big S self of meditation and the world that she, you know, I shouldn't say the world, the plane that she could drop into or elevate into. And then the small S self of your personality. And she's like, that's all that's left is your like, sort of like your nature as a human being that is not your choice and your egoless, you know, connection with, with what she would say is like the love that is the thread of, of the whole universe. And you could really feel it with her that she was both of those things because there's nothing like the experience of meditating with Sally, like the soothing quality of her voice the minute that you hear it and you know that one of the the great gifts i think about sally is that not only did she devote her entire adult life to these studies and practices and really not only become expert in communicating them and helping us all access the practices but also in transmitting this i don't know this ability to go deep so that in her presence you could just access it. I mean, it's really true. It's 
she, for me, I had done quite a bit of meditating before I meditated with her. It was never the same quality of depth and dropping in. And it was never the same quality of joy. She just loved it so much. She just, and so it all came through, like you said, in her transmission and in her language and like her painting the picture of things and the stories. And so you just, you just fell in love with it. It actually felt really pleasurable, which was so different for me. It had felt up until that point, like a chore to kind of like mark off of my to-do list. Like, okay, do my internal cleansing of my annoying, stupid mind. (laughs) (laughs) Clear it all out because it's really annoying. And with her, it was just like this art form. It was just, it was just art and beauty and love. Oh, there's just so many directions to go with Sally. (laughs) My experience when I went to her house, I, I will say, was that girlfriend energy of, it was really like, let's go out to dinner one day and let's meditate the next hour or whatever. Yeah. The the last morning that I was there, she's like, let's do this practice. Just like, let's get a cocktail, you know, like this. Let's go get a mani-pedi. Let's do this practice together. And she was so excited about it. And, and I was so completely delighted that whatever it was, I was game to try and um and so she invited me to do a practice where we were gazing in each other's direction but not necessarily at each other but breathing in i'm i'm it's something close to this i'm pretty sure it was breathing in or taking in the space behind oh. the other person's face like that oh almost like where the, where, when you think about the witness practice, where you are behind yourself coming, looking at yourself from behind, it was like that kind of space from behind them to behind you. And it, I had a really, really profound experience because in a way I was staring at her even though I was taking in the behind her. Right. right. <laughs> um, and I saw her face as, as something mask-like and changing, you know, like changed into some other visually significant things for me. Anyway, and at a certain point, I just couldn't do the practice anymore. I was so, I I had to close my eyes or my eyes involuntarily closed. And I was, um, I had just a radical experience of energy of what we would call Shakti or kundalini, the coiled energy, spiritual energy of the spine uh, at the base of the spine that represents our spiritual freedom as it moves up the spine. And it was like, I was tingly and once it was out of body because it was very in body, but it was like my whole body felt a little bit electrified. And I had this profound sensation that my heart was growing larger and larger, like physically it felt to the point that at one moment in the meditation, my rib cage expanded or so it felt like, like a cartoon of someone busting through prison bars, (laughs) you know, where they just go. Um, That, that experience was so, so profound. And so 
I wrote it. I mean, I wrote it in my journal. I do recall it took me a really long time when the meditation timer went off. I couldn't like immediately come back. And that was like, I was supposed to get off the cushion and drive home. And I was just like, took me a long time to be ready to go. And yeah. I probably sat in traffic as a result or something. But I wrote it all out and I wrote it to her in an email saying like, wow, like I couldn't even talk to you about it in the moment, but here's what happened. And ever since then, I had for a long period after that, I just dropped into meditation. Like, no, there was no barrier to meditating wow. on my own. I was kind of craving like, oh, I can't like Sally, can't wait to get back to that experience. But not, it wasn't like I was attached to that dramatic experience. It was more that there was just this incredible resonance with consciousness yeah. that felt appealing to rest in. Anyway, wrote her an email all about it, described it to her in detail and was really like so grateful for the transmission I felt I received in her um, presence. And she very much depersonalized it and said, isn't it amazing like that you had this, if you consider going way back to when you're 16, you were introduced to the kundalini awakening like that is what the guru is right is like a transmission of the awakening of your kundalini and so like how interesting that we never know like what causes the next experience or the next layer of experience etc but she made me she was like delighted and not taking any personal ownership seeing it more as the evolving mystery of the mm -hmm. shakti mm -hmm. interesting and when you say that not surprising yeah because she was a very mature teacher right yeah and not wow. particularly interested in the exact experience do you know what i mean like she wasn't disinterested in my experience but she i'm sure she's had plenty of her own experiences and heard hundreds if not thousands of people's experiences and it's just like yeah huh. right huh? <laughs> right right for you you're like wait a minute like I was like Dr. Seuss like my heart yeah. was bursting and she's like oh yeah okay <laughs> oh that one no, it wasn't, it, yeah it was and it wasn't like she was um not interested but you know what I mean like not interested yeah. not interested like very happy for me but it was also very much like huh, well right that's just interesting part of the yeah just part of the normal experience of of meditation and consciousness and awakening I also want to talk though about maybe you want to talk about our individual but common experience of being held by Sally. I was going to ask you about that. I wrote about it in one of my, in my sub stack, but I, I would love it if you would share a little bit about your experience of that because it's just really beautiful. Yeah, it was much earlier. So I'm, let's say going back around 17 years ago so wow. whatever year that was it was when I was probably still editing Sally and talking with her a lot because I was editing her column and I was going through a really difficult divorce and 
we made a plan to talk on a Sunday afternoon. And I don't think it was necessarily work related. I think it was like, oh, I'm having a hard time. And she's like, well, why don't we talk? Mm -hmm. And I was home alone and I was really anguished uh, about the divorce. And if I'm in, in hindsight, I was very fearful about what everything that was going on and what the implications would be for my relationship with my daughter, for where I lived, for my identity as a not a married person, a divorced person, my my finances, like where am I going to live? I don't know, just probably that whole constellation of things that ever that are like common to someone going through a divorce. But in the exact moment, that's not how I experienced it. I just was a ball of anxiety and pain and anger. And she asked me, I was crying. I remember, you know, like, let's call it 10 minutes into the call or something. And we were talking and I was crying and she said, tell me how you're feeling. And I just, I, I had nothing to say. I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And she kept asking and I kept saying, I don't know. Cause I couldn't, I probably was so anxious that I actually couldn't put words or any kind of boundaries on it. It was just too big and too overwhelming and too scary. And so when she realized that I wasn't going to be able to articulate and she wasn't going to be able to help me in like kind of of like on a human plane, she said, okay, well, let's just, let's just sit quietly. And she might've given me a little instruction about some, some kind of meditative instruction. I don't recall, but what I do recall is that we just sat on the phone for an entire hour in which she said nothing and I said nothing. I probably sobbed a little bit. Yeah. And she transmitted in that, that time, the most pure form of unconditional love, like, like the real mother bear, you're okay. Everything's going to be okay. Whatever it is that's going on is okay. I'm holding you in this love, this sweetness, this acceptance of all that is that was to this day like the most radical experience of unconditional love that I can imagine Mm -hmm. you know and that she did it over the phone like that I felt it so profoundly and that she was clearly so present you know she she I'm sure she just was meditating, you know, in mm-hmm. now that I think about it, right? Mm-hmm. But at the time, it just felt like she was just with me. Right. And I think that's one of the things that is so, been so remarkable in my, my relationship with Sally is that I have felt, perhaps starting with that moment, she is, and I say is in the present because my experience is very much that she's, she still is in the present a source of unconditional love that is unconditional and impersonal. Like she, Sally loved me, Caitlin as individuals, but she also transmitted or I don't even, I don't have the vocabulary for it, Um, but she, she emitted a quality of impersonal, unconditional love. Like this is the universal love. You're part of it. I'm part of it. And I have a way or it has a way of moving through me that allows you to feel it that has nothing to do with our personalities. Right. 
Right. And whether I like you or not, or anything else, <laughs> it's, it's just here. Totally. Yeah. Two things. I was listening to an old podcast that the two of us did together, Sally and I, and um, it was about ego. I actually think I might attach it to this conversation at the end of our conversation. It was a great conversation, but what stood out to me was this moment where she talked about that there are just, there's just benevolent energy all around you all the time. And, and it's about accessing it. And Sally was so respectful of the spectrum of religious experience. And she, you know, she was a student of all different religions. And so I know that she didn't say this in the podcast, but she would have said like, for some people that might be angels. For her, it was the deities, you know, it was the goddesses. And I've been thinking about that a lot since her passing because I've been feeling like, yeah, she's, she's here, you know, she's her. If I ever doubt that there's benevolent energy around me, all I have to think about is Sally. So that was one thing I thought of when you were talking about that. And then the other thing I've thought of a lot about since her passing and hearing your story reminds me of it. And then thinking of a very similar story that I have with her of being on the phone with her and her just transmitting to me, it's going to be okay-ness when I really didn't feel like anything was okay. Just, we all talk about how important presence is. It's so important to be present. It's important to be, you don't want to miss out on your life. You know what? But she was the first person with whom I experienced how healing another person's presence could be with nothing else added to it. And like your story describes that, right? Like she didn't fill the space with advice. She didn't fill it with, you know, little one-liners about how it was going to be okay. She didn't even fill it with a meditation in that moment. She just was present with you and her presence was healing. And that has been a, I've been trying to think about that so much recently since she passed. Like we just underestimate how important we are to each other (laughs) and how we could just, yeah. So it, it makes me think of her, her name that was given to her of Swami Durgananda, which when that choice was made, her feeling as reported was like, as she reported it was that she related more to being to Saraswati, the the goddess of learning and knowledge and wisdom studying, right? Like that, because she was such an intellectual, but Durga as the mother energy is actually whether it was who Sally was when she was named Durgananda or what she became, I have no idea. Mm. But for someone who was not a mother herself, she has like the the feeling, the kind of iconic feeling of holding baby to bosom and being the source of all, of all love, of life, of, I mean, that was, that was the kind of energy she transmitted in that in her presence, her healing presence was like the healing presence of the great mother, right? Mm-hmm. 
Like absolutely. Not to say that it was just maternal because that would that would diminish it in some way, but like in the sort of platonic ideal of mother love, mm-hmm. that's what it felt like to be in her presence. Yep. I'm it's yes, absolutely. I mean, it does, it, it, it always did strike me as amazing that she wasn't a mother herself. And yet, and I think in some ways, because of that, she could be a mother to all. That It was just like her dharma was, I don't want to say bigger. I'm a mother and I think it's huge and big enough and enough, right? But just broader to be that mother to all. And you're right. It's I've been listening to her meditations from her Awakening Shakti book, which are just, they're all just the different meditations on the goddesses. And I've been listening to Dorga over and over and over again. And it is, it does encapsulate her because she says Dorga was the mother to all, but she was a warrior, right? Yes. She had yes. that fierce, sharp, incisive spirit. And that was, that was Sally. And I'm I'm really grateful to her for it and just for, I'm just so grateful to her that she shared her gifts with all of us and grateful that we got to know her so well. Grateful to you for giving me her column after you, when you passed it on to me, I remember that. I remember you coming to my house in Arizona. I can't remember why we were both in Arizona, but when my parents lived in Arizona, you came over. We went because we had a photo shoot. Oh, right, right, right. And I don't know. We So we stayed at your parents. Right. And that was right when you were handing the column over to me and you spent like a really good amount of time helping me through the first column and helping me see my way through it. I was so nice that you did that because it gave me the confidence to take it on. And it actually helped me see things in a completely different light. Um, so, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. We were so privileged. Yeah, we were. We were. Mm-hmm. Well, thank so you much. so much. I'm so glad um, to have the opportunity also to just commune with all that Sally introduced us to. And she feels so present to me. So I'm glad. I'm also glad to be in the company of others who feel her presence. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Today, I have one of my all-time favorite teachers back on the show, Sally Kempton, and we are going to talk about ego. I think this topic came up for me because I have been talking to Jason's teacher trainees about Instagram and just helping them to optimize their strategy and plan their calendar. And I've really just been trying to encourage them to put themselves out there. And by the way, shameless plug, if you're interested, I'm going to try to do this workshop online soon too. Let me know if you're interested. So as I was doing this encouraging talk, I of course started to think of the shadow sides of social media too, and and just how it can be really hard to, how addictive it can be and how I find that when I'm feeling really addicted, it feels like my ego is addicted. Just just the sort of like basest, most in, instant gratification-oriented part of me is addicted. So I went right to Sally because she has so much of the yoga tradition embedded in her being and in her intellect. And this conversation did not disappoint. I definitely have found that 
you know, we talk a lot about one way to grapple with the ego is to know that its tendency is to want to identify itself with roles, with achievement, with, you know, your job or your beauty or these things that are really fleeting. And that the yoga tradition suggests identifying with awareness. And I love this. And I feel that I got to that place of identifying with awareness and accessing it and feeling like I was so much bigger than how I was identifying with myself through meditation. And I'm just really, really curious as to whether or not this makes sense to you and whether or not you feel it in your yoga asana practice. Obviously, you can feel it in your asana practice. It's just a lot harder for me. So I'm curious if you feel it in your asana practice or if you feel it, have felt it more in meditation, which, which practice has helped you to access that feeling. Hope that makes sense. Okay. Enjoy this interview. I feel like, you know, and this is definitely the world that I live in, but, but much of the world is being taken over by social media. And it's ironic that this, that social media has spurred this conversation I'm having with you today, because I actually talk to Jason students a lot about what I think that, that there are many benefits to social media. And I've experienced them, you know, just with the podcast itself. Like that's how I advertise the podcast and it's free. And I've connected with like a lot of listeners and it's really sweet. And there are lots of wonderful things about it. But having said that, I just find it such a, to be so curious. And I guess I just, I just wanted to talk to you about it in terms of the health of our egos, because I think of it as like the part of me, I mean, obviously we need our ego for survival it's part of our personality and it's part of how we, you know, set boundaries and it's, it's how we follow through on our day-to-day life and our beliefs. But at the same time, I often think of it as like a needy child, you know, it need like it thrives on adulation and adoration and instant gratification. So, and those are all the things that, those are sort of like the shadow sides to social media. Right. It just feeds that so much, even if you are like a fairly healthy person. So, that's why I'm interested in this topic just right now. And also I'm interested in it because I think it is, can be a little bit confusing. Well, it's taught different ways in, in the yogic teachings. And so I wanted to kind of ask you about that. So I guess as a starting place, I kind of shared what I, how I think of the ego in terms of a definition. I'm wondering, you know, how you define the ego and its purpose and then how you approach it from your perspective in yoga. Okay, first of all, I, I agree with you that you know, the yogic definition of ego, which is the one I basically subscribe to, is that the ego is obviously an extremely significant part of our psychic mechanism, our psychic instrument, if for no other reason than it keeps us from, you know, believing that what Joe says is coming out of our mouth. Yeah. So, you know, ego helps keep boundaries. It helps it actually is really good for self-preservation. Hmm. There's a story, this is like a wild story, but it's it's what's coming to mind, so I'll share it. That you know, the great Saint Ramakrishna, we used to go into these very intense samadhi states, states of deep meditation, and he he would worry that he he wouldn't come out of it, that he would just, you know, stay there and leave his body. So he would seed into his mind a particular physical desire that his you know, for his own ego gratification that would bring him out of meditation, which might be something very simple, like I want to eat this 
or I want to finish that conversation, or I want to smoke a pipe. You know, his theory is that that we actually need our sense of individuality in order to go on walking around and living our lives and doing anything for ourselves. You know, if we didn't have ego, right? We, you know, we just we'd be without spine, so to speak. The ego provides, you know, not only boundaries but also can be the reason that we are do good things, you know, mm. as the reason we do bad things. So it's kind of a neutral, the ego, you know, you know, and like everything, you know, it's like we need it. So, so then the question is, how do we hold, you know, that mechanism that says this is me and that's not, you know, or this is good for me and that's not, how do we hold it in a way that's healthy and doesn't run over other people and actually takes us in a positive direction? So I would say, Part of what I think you're talking about is, you know, what what we could call, you know, for want of a better word, negative ego, right? Mm. Or the painful, suffering, creation ego. And of course, you know, we tend to believe in our society that people with big egos are loud and confident, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. A lot of the time, right, people with big egos are, you know, scared and narcissistic and feel bad about themselves and have to get validation constantly from outside. And I think that's the thing. That's the part of us that social media can feed, especially when we grow up with it from such an early age. Right. Yeah. I'll just interject quickly. Like when I speak to students about social media, I feel like I get the most feedback that they really, that it really makes them feel bad from the younger students. And I think yeah. that's because it is like such a p- part and parcel of their life and that a lot of them hasn't developed yet. You know, even in young adulthood, you're still developing and growing and kind of solidifying yourself. In, so I feel like especially in your 20s. And so, yeah, it, it's an added pressure. And it feels like sometimes it feels like a burden. And, I, and as I look at my daughter and think, you know, she's not exposed to it yet, but she's going to be. How do we handle that? I don't interact with a lot of preteens and, you know, uh, what do you call them, tweens. Uh-huh. But the younger kids I know are totally, you know, are getting into social media at about the age of eight, mm-hmm. unless they go to a Montessori school where they don't have to use it. You know? Right, right, right. And let's face it, <laughs> we can't always send our kids to Montessori schools. This is the question, and I don't know how to answer it because I I don't have enough experience with that demographic but it seems to me that that part of what we could do or what we can do or what we need to do is to begin to create an understanding of what kind of social media posts actually make us feel bad Mm -hmm. try to avoid them you know like try to change our language especially girls Mm -hmm. I think can do this I don't you know I I think the, the sense of humor of the young masculine has a you know easier time dealing with aggression perhaps than than girls do, right? As a twelve year old was subject to a major mean girls attack when I was in the seventh grade, I would say it scarred me for years. Yeah, and, you know those, as you know those things are really 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 painful. So now we can do it on social media, right? And that means that means people don't even have to be our friends. You know? hmm. To hurt us and make us feel betrayed. So, what kind of training do kids need to be able to resist it? And 
a lot of it has to do with with the, the messages that they get, you know, or that they're able to find for themselves about other sources of self-worth. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think the other thing like that concerns me for younger people is that the role models that they're looking up to, well, first of all, the standards of beauty become so warped. And, you know, I worry about like the constant exposure to unrealistic ideals for, for girls. At the same time, I mean, just as you were talking, I remembered a conversation I had with Jason recently where he said, I always try to tell people that social media is a form of media, just like TV, just like movies, just like any of those things. And so you can turn it off. And so maybe educating people that even though it is person to person, which is different than TV, right? That was like a network and, you know, apparently that might be going away, but even though it's person to person, it's still a form of media. It's still not absolute reality. Absolutely. And I think that, that people, we do have to have some form of Sabbath for social media. Hmm. That itself might even help. As I think about it, I think, so what resources do we have for transforming our attitudes? And I do think one of them is that there is now so much attention being paid to the problems that social media causes. And and it's being paid not because adults, you know, are trying to impose standards on young people. It's because kids themselves are complaining about it, right? Right, right, right. And I find this generation is unbelievably conscious. I mean, more conscious, really, than any generation I've seen, including mine. Hmm. They're so savvy, I know, about emotional issues. I think it would be really interesting to do a kind of yogic training about how to look at social media, to understanding Jason's point that it's just media, you know, that it's, it's something that's happening in the virtual world, and to, to begin to discover your own strategy for interacting safely on social media. I think people need to develop skills, you know, like, like not to put your, you know, the, you know, those old pictures of the coconut, you know, you throw the coconut at somebody's face. So many people on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, just it's like they put their head in the hole so that people can, can throw coconuts at it. <laughs> I think it's really important that we, we learn to, under, to mediate our impulses towards sharing things that are, first of all, going to get us ridiculed, and secondly, that are, that are going to you know, cause problems for us later, and somehow use our social media accounts really to interact with, with you know, our buddies and, our mm-hmm. and, and not this, this so-called, you know, this big public it makes us feel like we could be Beyonce. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. As long as as people are making reputations for themselves on Instagram and YouTube and succeeding at it, other people are going to want to do it, right? So, so then if if that's what you're, if that's how you want to roll, then you actually need to understand, you know, that there are. I don't want to use the word rules, but there are skill sets. Mm-hmm. That you shouldn't, you just should not enter this game without mastering some of the skill sets. And one of them, one of the skill sets that you need if you're going to be a public person is an ability not to be completely emotionally overturned by criticism. Mm. You have to have a goal. So, in other words, you have to know that you're posting for a particular reason that people might criticize you, 
But because your goal is not simply to get people to like you, your, your goal is is to make a point or to stand up for something. You know what I mean? Or to yes, completely. Something. Yeah, then then it's a whole different story. Yeah, I mean, I've posted about my past experience with depression a couple times on a couple times on social media because I've done related podcasts, and I've been you know, people have said to me, like, it was so courageous of you. And I, I appreciate that feedback. But it's funny, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel courageous of me to talk about it on social media, because the reason I'm doing it is to help other people. And so and that's the reason I ever started writing in my whole life in the first place, was just to share stories, because growing up for me, the way that I learned best was by learning someone else's personal story or hearing about someone who had been through something like that's just how I related best to the world. So for me, it feels like a really natural extension of what I've always been doing. And I think that's why I don't have like a lot of discomfort around it, but I do notice just get like circling back. I do notice my addiction to it. I notice, I notice just that zap of instant gratification slash validation. And yeah, just like kind of going back to thinking about the ego, I guess I want to talk about how to help people understand, you know, use yoga to like understand how to have a healthy ego and how to keep it in check as well, you know? Yeah. So I I think a couple of things. I love what you said about doing about posting about on social media to help people, because I actually feel that that attitude, certainly for me as a teacher and writer, that this understanding that your goal is to serve others, and that therefore you choose what you say mm-hmm. um, with that in mind, and I think that's a big deal. You know, it's it's very different writing with the, with the goal of what will serve others, you know, what will help others in their evolution, then with the goal of how can I say this in the coolest, cutest, most shocking, interesting way, which is not to say it's not great to say it in an interesting way. That is one of the, I would say, best ways to keep the ego in check, to just keep asking how does, you know, does this serve? Am yes. I serving? Right? And, and then to take the feedback that you receive this is the other thing. Now I'm talking about things that have helped me. There's this one sentence that I started saying to myself in my late 20s, and it was this, I'm in training, I'm learning. I'm in training, I'm learning. Hmm. And, so, and so when I messed up, you know, when I made mistakes, which was and continues to be often, I find that if I remember, okay, I'm, I'm on this earth plane to learn how to live, Hmm. I just made a mistake. And the only mistake I could make right now would be to beat myself up about it. And instead, what I'm going to do is, is ask myself, okay, so what did I learn from this mistake? And that really changed my uh, low self-esteem issue. And I would also say in terms of keeping the ego in check, you know, one of the ways we can tell that our ego is is in full uh, self-destructive, you know, mode, is when somebody accuses us of something that we didn't do, or or makes an assumption about us that we think isn't true. And there's this little voice that 
that speaks up and says, no, that's not true. That's not me. <laughs> you know, you know and I, it, that self-justifying voice or that, you know, you misunderstood me voice is part of what ego does. And so one of the ways we can learn to see when we're identified, when we're ego identified is by the emotion that comes up when we're falsely accused or misunderstood or when something unfair happens. Hmm. So what I was thinking when you were saying that is just to kind of talk through it a little bit. So it's like those moments where you're feeling really defensive or like you said, misunderstood. If your ego is sort of at the helm, it's like your sense of self feels threatened. Right. Your sense of identity feels threatened. Right, right, right. Because you're identifying with that particular aspect. You know, for instance, if somebody says, you know, you're a terrible, you know, baseball player. I'm going to say, and whatever, because <laughs> I'm a terrible baseball player. Right. If someone says I'm a, and I'm not identified with being a baseball player, but if someone says you're a terrible writer, that hurts me mm-hmm. because, I, because my ego is identified with being a writer. And there, here's the way, if you don't mind my self-aggrandizing for a minute, one of the ways that I know that my my practice, you know, of letting go of the ego has borne fruit to some extent is that although people still do accuse me of being a terrible writer. I, that's I, crazy, by the I, way. Well, it's just, you know, how life is. But I've learned how to take it with a grain of salt, which is a which is something that one develops with inner work, you know, you can, you you actually find a way to say, okay, this person thinks I'm not good at the thing I'm, you know, not good at my job, not good at my, not good as a parent. This person doesn't like me, you know, all those things. And you can start to say to yourself, okay, sometimes using Byron Katie's questions, which are, I think, really helpful. Is that really true? Mm-hmm. Is that really, really true? And then if you remember, her next question is, and who would I be if I didn't believe this idea? Who would I be if I didn't believe this? And those, just doing a little inquiry with your emotional reactions to things will help show you some of the ways in which our ego messes with us. You know, it's, I mean, if, if the person who says you're terrible at your job happens to be your boss, that's a problem. Right. right. It's a logistical problem. It's yeah. a logistical problem that might affect your life. If someone who has no real effect on your, you know, your choices in life, or, you know, for instance, someone on your social media feed critiques you, it probably doesn't have an effect on your life. Right. right? So you can dismiss it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I would love to know, I would love to unpack this a little bit because you mentioned, you know, having done this inner work and spiritual work for a long time has made it easier. Yeah. I love if you could just explain what that process is, what that inner feeling process is. If someone did who you, who you respected and said, they just really didn't like something that you recently wrote. What do you think is the difference now versus let's say like in your twenties with being able to manage that more easily? The big difference is that when I'm in my twenties, Every time I failed, I would feel, okay, that's it. Hmm. And I'll never do this again. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I am a failure. Now, when somebody critiques something I've done, I listen and I often, uh, 
I often learn something, hmm. you know, so because I, I really don't believe that I am a writer. The thing that has made the, the difference is, is really identifying with awareness or identifying with, with love in the heart. In other words, identifying with something in yourself and awareness, you know, the awareness that is present to your thoughts and your experience. Awareness is, is an aspect of yourself that once you've discovered it, once you have a felt sense of it, it's always present. You know, so when you're having a, you're having a bad time, when your ego is smarting, is really hurting, uh, which is a, a very normal human experience. I would never critique anybody for having, you know, having suffering because they've been rejected or disapproved of. But if you have learned to identify with awareness as your deepest self, then you have an automatic perspective. You know, okay, this is a part of me, a part of my life that isn't working right now, but it doesn't impact who I really am, which is awareness. Mm -hmm. You know, taking that perspective, if you do it intelligently, you know, not using it as an excuse for not dealing with your issues in daily life, identifying that way, learning to identify that way, coming back to it again and again, not only helps you stay a little bit immune to the slings and arrows of other people's, you know, meanness, but it it also gives you access to the the resource that awareness is, because your awareness is so much smarter than your ego, so much smarter than your mind, so much smarter than anybody else's mind, right? When you really know that you are awareness, that you are awareness, you actually can tune into your own awareness and ask the question, okay, what's, what's the right thing for me to say or do now? And you'll get an answer that comes from someplace so much more intelligent than, than your ordinary self that it's stunning. And, and this very practice of okay i am i am awareness okay awareness can you give me a sort of a spontaneous way of dealing with this situation that my limited self is in and then practice following the intuition that emerges you're going to have you know you you will have begun to train yourself to move through the seams of reality with a much deeper skill than if you're relying on you know your self-identified ego yeah yeah. That was so well said and so much there. I, I read something before this interview that said, your ego, it's kind of like when you over-identify with your ego, it's kind of like putting on a pair of glasses and thinking that you're the glasses. Beautiful. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like, it's, yeah. And, and, and so I guess I, I finding it so interesting right now, I've never quite thought of it this way that we kind of, if if we even have awareness of the awareness, right? Like, I mean, I feel like before I came to yoga, I didn't even have that. And then once it kind of turns on, ignites, you just have access to it. You doesn't really, it doesn't go away. It's this lovely thing. But it's almost like, do you feel like it's almost like we're toggling in yeah. life? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, there is a point and, you know, and when you're, I mean, if you think about when you're having a really good day or you're in the zone, you know, when you're you're moving effortlessly from one thing to another without that part of you that's going, I don't want to do this or maybe I won't make the bus, you know, that when you're in a sort of spontaneous flow, mm-hmm. then you have a moment of realizing what it is to be guided by that that deep intelligence. 
And but most of the rest of the time we are toggling. You know, you're like you're trying to you're trying to take care of your responsibilities. Your yeah. Boss. And you are writing that story and submitting it on time because you are a writer and you need to get paid because you need to survive and like, all, yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and you need to get along with the people around you and you need to compromise and know when not to compromise. I mean, there's, you know, a million, you know, issues that come up in life that actually we need, we need what we would call healthy ego boundaries to navigate. Right. I mean, it's really important to know. To, to be able to discern, for instance, between what's my stuff and what's another person's stuff, right? Because if it's your stuff, then you need to do emotional work. If it's the other person's stuff, you need to go, you know, as we sometimes say in, in my Indian-based tradition, we need to go swaha, let it go. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But most, most of the time, because, so, because we, we tend to be so codependent, you know, our whole culture is so codependent we tend to not be able to tell the difference, you know, between what's our emotional charge and what somebody else's emotional charge that's being projected onto us. Mm -hmm. So, so just learning to get a felt sense of how it feels inside your body when feelings are hurt or when, or when your ego is doing one of its numbers, that's really, really important. Instead of just going from trigger to trigger, right? Which I feel like I did for so much of my early life. Like I was always such a thinker and like, just, yeah, it felt like trigger to trigger and rumination to rumination. Yeah. Yeah. And also one of the things that meditation and yoga do for us is, is increase our ability to stay with uncomfortable feelings, right? Because I mean, you, you can't really meditate seriously over time without confronting a lot of uncomfortable feelings and the same is true in asana practice so so and and again i think you would agree that some of the internal muscles we develop in if we really pursue our yogic practice seriously is the is the ability to actually remain with something that we don't understand or that is confusing or that is painful and to discern the difference between the pain of growth and the pain that means that we're being injured. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much discernment gets taught to us, you know, if we really do, if we really do our practice and it, of course it translates into daily life. So for someone who is just starting out, what is a good practice for, you know, developing that awareness of awareness? Well, the, the great classic practice, and it's the one I come back to again and again, is to ask yourself, okay, what is it that knows I'm having this feeling? You know, and, and then tuning into the, to the other part of your inner world of your inner consciousness you know there's a part of you that's feeling the emotion and then there's a part of you that's watching it that knows it's happening mm -hmm. if you keep asking that question okay what knows what knows i'm having this feeling and then 
identifying with that, if, even for a fraction of a second, it's going to change the perspective, your perspective on your emotions. Another thing that, that I find really works, aside from those Byron Katie questions, which I think are genius, you know, is this really true? What makes me think it's really true? Is it always true? Or what would my experience be if I wasn't having this emotion? Sometimes just reminding yourself that you would feel a lot better if you could let go of a thought or if you could let go of a feeling. Sometimes that alone is enough. Right, 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 right. That actually leads me back to what I was just trying to to dig up, you know, which is the concept of non-attachment, which I think is another concept in yoga that we misunderstand and that you know, we feel, I feel like it gets subverted a lot into people, you know, expecting yogis to just be able to let go so easily and not be attached to things and, you know, not even have emotions almost, or or people can put that pressure on themselves. And yeah, I guess the way that I think about it is like, and I'm just wondering what you think is you can't, just let go of something until you know there's something to let go into. And that's that foundation of awareness that you're talking about. Like, once you know that you are more than just your quirks and your personality and the size of your nose and like the size of your thighs and your wrinkles and all of those things and your intellect, once you know that you're more than those, uh, that you're more than those things, it's, the practice of letting something go can feel more grounded and more supported and safer. And <laughs> like, it just makes more sense. It does. And I also think we need to have had a couple of positive experiences of having let something go and having just feeling more relaxed, more at peace, mm. love. You know, I mean, if you, if your only experiences of letting go have been of having something that you really cared about wrested away from you by a stronger force and don't haven't had any positive experience of that or or haven't known how to look for the positive experience because often that's the issue then you you know then it's very hard to let go because you only see the downside right you feel like you're you feel like you're losing mm-hmm. and i do think that that there really is no substitute for for self inquiry you know for for instance, in a moment when letting go happens, and I'm just thinking of starting in childhood, right? You, I just saw, I was just traveling with a kid on a plane and we watched The Boss Baby, which uh, you might have seen. <laughs> it's actually very cute cartoon music. Sophia's watched that. It's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. 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 it's yeah. hilarious. And, it's all about what happens when you get a baby brother or sister and how the, you know, the baby takes away all the, all your parents' attention. So, and this is a big thing. I mean, speaking as someone who had a younger brother born when I was, you know, too young to realize that it was, you know, that I was not being cut out of the family. So learning to let go is something that I think we may or may not develop positively in childhood. And if we've had a lot of difficult experiences of letting go and having it be a big loss, we might have to train ourselves by, you know, actually testing out situations in which letting go can lead to something positive. And I'm thinking of of one example that everyone has, I think. When you get a bad cold and you have to stay in bed and you have to miss something that you wanted to do, 
that's you can you can practice letting go in that situation and then feel what's good about letting go and then start to experience the felt sense of of how letting go can be a relief Hmm. and you know the other side of it which we also need to mention is that you know some people yogi some yogis are so addicted to letting go that we'll just let go of everything. <laughs> totally. Yes. And then I, a friend of mine wrote a play called Zen Boyfriends about you know guys who are just, when you suggest that the relationship might go better, if they spent more time with you, they would they say, whatever, you know, right. I'm totally detached from this relationship. <laughs> so, so that's not the way to go either. Right. <laughs> and that is like sometimes a common pendulum swing that, you know, people come back from, but yeah, that's like the gross misinterpretation of, of letting go. Well, you know, T.S. Eliot's great statement, teach me to care and not to care. It's pretty much it. You know, like, how do we, how do we really give our fullness and then let it go? I mean, that's, that's the cohort of human life, right? Totally. I, I think also for me, like letting go if it's not supported in some way, it can feel like I'm faking it. And, you know, there is that expression, fake it till you make it. And there are situations where fake it till you make it, I think is not a bad idea, but it can be so incredibly painful to fake something only to have it come up again in some other way. Right. Right. Well, to think, still- like to think you've let it go to convince yourself you've let it go to, and really you've just kind of like stuffed it down <laughs> and it's going to come out in some other way. You mean that particular incident? Yeah. I, I, I think the thing is, the thing that makes it complicated, of course, is that when something has charge for you, for me, for all beings, it's almost always because it's triggering something quite old. Mm. And if you can't find the thing that's being triggered, then it's very hard to pluck it out. It's very hard to let go of it because you you can't let go of the root. You know, you're letting go of one of the twigs. So, so you're absolutely right that fake fake it till you make it. Letting go, where you, which can turn into okay, it's okay with me if you know you go out with twenty other women, right? We're dating, but it really isn't. <laughs> and, and one day the, you know, the full horror of what you're allowing and your, you know, your true emotional response is going to come up in a huge blow up or blowout. It's again, a question of knowing what are appropriate boundaries and knowing what situations you are worth giving into and what situations you have to take a stand on, you know? Yeah. That's a life skill. You don't, most of us have to learn it. What was that phrase you used to say in your 20s? I'm practicing or I'm in training. I'm in training. I'm in training. That is so good. I like that a lot. Another thing that came up for me while we were talking that helped me long ago start to think about the ego differently was just the phrase in success or failure, I am the same. And I don't know where that came from. I don't know if that's like a well-known phrase in Buddhism or, but just that idea that I mean, first of all, so for someone who's a perfectionist or like super achievement oriented, I see, actually see this in my daughter. It's like, if you are afraid of failure, you won't even try. Yeah. So it's helpful on that level and success or failure, I'm the same. And then it's helpful if you failed. And then it's helpful if you're successful too, in just kind of yes. having that steady hum 
behind all of the, the parts of your ego that are in the material world. That is great. That's brilliant. And what I've noticed is that you have to do it in success as well. Yeah. Because I think for many of us, at least this is my experience, I can live with success. <laughs> I mean, I've learned, I've learned not to keep patting myself on the back, you know, 40 times. Oh my God, you gave such a good class. Oh, you're so good. Oh, isn't that great? <laughs> I, but I have, I have historically had a really hard time letting go of failure. And I, in that book, Buddha's Brain, they say that there's a wonderful phrase, uh, we're Teflon for positive experiences. Yep. And, right? And Velcro yep. for negative. So, so our failures, you know, loom so large in us that, that, and I actually think that finding a way to assimilate failure without, you know, just stuffing it somewhere where it becomes part of our backpack and, you know, comes up as a fear mm -hmm. next time we take a risk. Learning how to assimilate our failures is, is, I think, one of the most important aspects of, you know, healthy ego. I mean, one of the yogic techniques for assimilating failure that, again, I, I think is really helpful is to actually offer it, you know, to say, okay, here's a situation I, I, I didn't do as well as I wanted to, or I did my best and it didn't work out. You actually imagine it, imagine it as an object in your hands and just make a gesture of offering with your open hands, offer it to the universe, offer it to goddess you know, offer it to the eternal teacher, but actually make it, make it an offering. And again, it's, it's one of those yogic techniques that you don't, you don't see why offering your failures would work to free you from the sense of failure, but it really does. I bet it does. That sounds so nice. <laughs> it sounds so nice. <laughs> yeah, because when let's, when we think about it, like when you failed, presumably you've then taken all the steps you can take to make sure that hasn't happened again. But like you said, you still have, there's probably still some emotion lodged in there or just energy, like just like that negative stagnant energy lodged in there. So that's just like a nice energetic thing you can do with that. You know, I, I would add one more thing, Andrea, which, I mean, many of us are motivated to be better people by our ego. Hmm. You know, you know, in other words, you, you want to think of yourself as somebody who's kind. And uh -huh. so, so you behave kindly, even when you, you know, even when you don't feel like it. So, and in the same way, you want to consider yourself a person, you know, who helps people who need help. You go out of your way, even when it's inconvenient. And it's not a pure compassionate impulse or a pure impulse of kindness. It has to do with how you hold yourself, you know, how you want to be, hmm. which is an which is often, you know, an egoic position. So, and yet, to me, using your ego to inspire you to be a better person or to inspire you to, you know, to, to make a little extra effort in your, you know, in your work life, to spend more time with your kids because you want to see yourself as a good parent. I mean, those are ways in which we can use the ego to sort of improve the world around us, mm. you know. You know, one way to understand the ego is how can we use it positively? That's so great. Yeah, I appreciate that so much. I don't think that's I've ever 
heard it talked about in that way. And of course it makes total sense. Like we, sometimes we behave politely because it reflects well on our ego, you know, it like it reflects well on us. And so that's not such a bad thing all the time. No, actually it's, it's how we maintain a civilized right. society. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So that goes back to what you said in the very beginning, which is like, it's part of our self-preservation. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Sally. This time just flew by, but it was just incredibly helpful. And you know, I could always talk to you about these things all day. So thanks for, thanks for talking to me. My pleasure, Andrea. And I love your work. So may, may it continue to unfold. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening. I will put all sorts of links that honor Sally on my show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 305. So I'll put links to her books, Awakening Shakti, Meditation for the Love of It. I will also put links to her website where there's a 30 minute video that you can watch about Sally's life that she recorded years ago for GLOW. There's also uh, her Celebration of Life ceremony is on the Sally Kempton website. I will put a link to how you can purchase and download her audio meditations from Sounds True. And I will put a link to the past episodes and a link to my essay about her on Substack. All kinds of ways to continue to learn from and access Sally's wisdom and her heart. Okay, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it widely and let me know what you think. And you can always join my Substack and let me know what you think there too. It's yogaland.substack.com. All right. Lots of love until next week. Enjoy your practice. Mm -hmm.